you know, when I think about my relationship to the Academy, part of the struggle was like, I don't want to talk in academic prose. I don't want to publish in academic journals because who's going to see it and who's it going to benefit? How can I do work that, that actually reaches people, right? And can, can impact their lived experiences. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. This show might sound a bit different today because the skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Dr. Yapa Blay joins me on Skim from the Couch. She is a scholar activist and cultural consultant and her work centers on the lived experiences of black women and girls. She is also a creative producer and native ethnographer and has created campaigns that illuminate her work, including the multi-platform digital community and web series, Professional Black Girl. Dr. Blay, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We're so excited. We have a standard question we ask everybody. I'll now ask you, which is, can you please skim your resume for us? Ooh, skim my resume. The resume is one of those things I hate thinking about and I hate looking at and updating because it's this moment where you have to be self-centered and talk about all the wonderful things that you do as a way to, I guess, evidence the things that you can do moving forward. But my background, it kind of feels aligned with who I am. I'm a Sagittarius with a Gemini rising. And so that Gemini air sign part of me likes to be free. And I kind of follow my interests at the time. And then I'm usually over it and move on to something else. And so educationally wise, I have a bachelor's in psychology. I chose psychology because my father's a professor who taught sociology and I didn't want to be anything like him, but I also knew that I didn't like math. I didn't like science. I really didn't have any true aspirations growing up aside from the standard. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor, which wasn't really real for who I was, but I was interested in psychology for whatever I knew about it at the time. So I majored in psychology. While an undergraduate student, I got pregnant my sophomore year, ended up transferring schools, had my daughter the summer between my sophomore and junior years, and then went right back to school and graduated on time. And and as I'm talking out loud and as I'm thinking about it, what I know is that so many of the decisions that I made career-wise, and even just in terms of my life, unfortunately, were based upon proving people wrong. Um, More about that and less um, about what I really wanted. And so for me, it was difficult already being Dr. Blaze's daughter. So then having become Dr. Blay's pregnant daughter, I had something to prove, right? That I wasn't going to be whatever it was people thought a quote unquote teen mom was. And so I did the most, you know, graduating on time with a baby, with honors, because I had something to prove, but it wasn't really driven by this desire to do or be anything. So I graduated, didn't have a job, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had this degree that everybody said you had to get, right? So I spent some time unemployed and then I got my first job as a social worker with big brothers and big sisters. And I loved that job. And what I loved the most about that job was 
actually being able to help and support families. And so after working that job for a couple of years, I decided I wanted to go to the next level, which was really about trying to make more money because there's a ceiling that happens when you have a bachelor's degree, right? So I went back to school and got a master's in counseling psychology because I wanted to be a therapist. I thought I could help everyone since that's what I enjoyed doing with the families. And so I got my master's. I graduated again with honors, got a job, and then I was over it. So for as much as I enjoyed talking to people and, and helping them work through whatever their issues were, it just wasn't fulfilling to sit in an office for eight hours and have clients back to back. And also, if I'm honest, to not really have any evidence that I was helping them. So while I was uh, working, one of my mentors at the time kind of helped me to talk through how to think think through moving forward, like how to make a decision about what it was I wanted to do. And he helped me to see that ultimately across the board, what I really um, enjoyed and what I was really interested in was myself and my culture. And so he helped me to whittle it down and I decided to pursue a PhD in Black Studies. And so I went to Temple, moved to Philadelphia, went to Temple, studied the PhD in African-American studies and women's and gender studies. My dissertation research looked at skin bleaching in Ghana, which I have a personal connection to because my family's from Ghana. And my mother's only sister died at the age of 58. Um, doctors said it was from dementia. I'm pretty sure it's because she used skin bleaching agents for most of her adult life. And so I was interested in figuring out what that was because it wasn't something that my family talked about. You know, I didn't even really okay. notice it until after she passed away. You know, I gave my mom this. I put together this photo album for my mom to try and comfort her. And I'm looking at these pictures and I'm like, wait a minute, like her color changed. Oh, wow, you didn't know? As a child, I didn't think wow, about yeah. it, you know? Um, and my mom's like, yeah, she bleached her skin. And I'm like, you said that like it was nothing. And so it just made me really curious about skin bleaching as a practice, but then also as an industry. And so what, I'm, what I find is that when I have a personal connection to whatever it is, that is like a very strong motivator for me to keep going. And so, um, yeah, I, I researched skin bleaching in Ghana. I, I took several trips to Ghana. I used to actually take students on study abroad. And I used that time to do my research. And so, again, I graduated without a job. And what's interesting, right, when, when you're in grad school, at least from my experience, um, the only kind of uh, uh, carrot that our professors and mentors kind of whittled in front of our face was the idea and the aspiration of landing a tenure track position, right? And for me, because I know how I am when it gets to writing, like I get so, I can't do anything else. I'm just completely focused. There was no way that I could write, research, write, and be on the job market because that in and of itself is a job, right? So unlike many of my peers who were writing and on the market, I told myself I wasn't going to do that and I would look for a job when I was done. So my friends graduated with jobs and they may have graduated a little after me. I graduated what felt like on time in my mind, but I didn't have a job. So again, here I am with a degree and debt and no employment. And so spent some time looking and ended up getting a job at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, where I was, what was my title at the time? I believe my title was like director of the joint multicultural program. And essentially it was the institution's attempt to have some kind of diversity and equity 
arm of the institution that was both responsible for the academic as well as student affairs. And it was a lot. But I think what made it a lot was the fact that for those of you who are or maybe aren't from Pennsylvania, for me, (laughs) once you leave Philadelphia, you are in Klan country. And so being at a predominantly white institution, also in a very white and racist environment, was very challenging for me because I am probably too black for my own good. You know, I come from a West African family, so our culture is very strong. I grew up in New Orleans, which is one of the blackest cities in this country. I've always been centered in blackness, always had a strong appreciation for who I am. So it was very much a struggle for me to be in a space, especially with my daughter, to be in a a place where we could count how many of us there were. And it just, it didn't feel good. So even though I kept the job, I left, I I moved back to Philly and just commuted. But all of that to say, it, it, it wasn't a tenure track position, right? So again, at this crossroads where I have the the credentials, right, to do a lot of different types of work, but the only ways that I had thought about it prior to that was, again, this tenure track position, which I didn't get. So I spent a lot of time jumping from Lehigh to Lafayette to Drexel, then to North Carolina Central. And now, after having had all that experience, I am what I am self-describing as an independent people's worker, because I really don't know that I want to go back to the academy. I don't, I'm not cutting it off, but in reflection, I can say that it was probably one of the least affirming experiences that I've had. Um, On this side of things, I see that the work that I want to do, the work that I'm able to do really isn't supported by the ivory tower. So I'm just trying to figure it out still. I love that. That is a great skim. You started, one of the first things you said on the top of the show is that like, you like to be free, like you, you're creative and like, you don't like to be held down. Talk to us about your childhood and, and how you think that has informed what you've now kind of branded as like your own definition of an industry. It's interesting. Um, I am first generation born in America. So my father came here to do his PhD. My mother soon followed. They had me here. When I think of folks who make those kinds of moves, like I'm also obsessed with 90 Day Fiance, so we can talk about that later. I would love to talk about that. Of course, it's from an an ethnographic perspective. But it is to say I'm fascinated when folks are willing to literally leave everything behind, right, to go to this new space to create a new life. And so my parents attempted to raise me in this new environment but still by the, the, the culture that they came from, right? And it, I think it was, a str- it was a struggle for me on the receiving end. I'm not really sure how much of a struggle it was for them because had they raised me in Ghana, I would have been raised by my community. You know what I mean? I, 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 so many folks would have been able to help them care for me. And I think that was probably a lot different for them. Um, with us living in New Orleans, they did have a large West African community. So I had many aunties and uncles and, and cousins, but... I say that to say my parents are the reason why I'm free. Like, for as as strict as they were, they literally let me go with whomever. (laughs) You know, like, so if somebody was taking their kids to the amusement park, I want to go, okay. Like, they they were very trusting of folks, which may or may not have been a good thing. 
But I was always free. It was always about what I wanted to do. You know, anybody who knew me at that time, any aunties, uncles, or even cousins, they would probably describe me as wild. That is the word they would use. Like, so as much as it was probably a problem for my parents, I think I've always reserved the right to change my mind. And it's such a powerful thing, like to feel like you can change your mind. I think a lot of times on the show, we talk about people who've changed career paths or who have like just made a mistake and are like, you know what? I thought this is what I wanted. It's not, but I actually think it's like a very powerful thing to say, like, it's okay to change your mind and to change course. And I think you've obviously done that in a, in many ways over and over again. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing again, it's, I feel like there's a powerful memoir I'll probably get to write when I'm like 80 years old because it just keeps feeling like the dots connect even when I don't Mm -hmm. feel like they are in the moment. But like when I think of my training as a counselor, so many of the things that I learned were really for me, you know? Like I remember, you know, in a class and and we're talking about different modalities and methodologies and and the professor said something in terms of a follow-up question to a client is to ask, what's the worst that could happen, right? And so to put someone in a position to literally have to sit even through your anxiety and your worry, even though you may have created this storm in your head about how everything's going to fall apart, to make them actually articulate what the worst is that could happen for them to see that it's actually not so bad, right? So when I see folks, and I see it, I see it with my daughter, with my friends, I even experience it, that when you have that moment of like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, or oh, I'm going to change my mind, and all of these things could happen. But for me, you know, I can say it out loud to myself, but I'll literally write it on paper, the worst that could happen so that I can see it. You write it down? I love that. The worst that can happen once I, once, once I see it is actually yeah. not so bad at all, you know? And so, yes, I know when I tell my story, it sounds crazy, particularly given the amount of debt that I have behind all these uh-huh. degrees. But when I think about it, there are no mistakes. My background in in counseling psychology added with my training to Black studies and women's studies absolutely fuels me and makes me prepared to do work that actually impacts the lived experiences of Black people, Black women and girls specifically, because it's not just about the theory. It's not just Mm -hmm. about the history. It's not just about the words on paper. It's about how do these words on paper actually impact our lived experiences? It's a good transition because I want, you know, what I was going to say is that, or ask you, you've obviously spent, maybe not obviously, but you have spent a lot of time outside of academia and taking your work and using it or that background to create impactful campaigns. And, you know, as you just said, a lot of these campaigns are focused on Black women and Black girls. And I want to understand how you sort of got into the kind of the creative part of creating these campaigns. And like, for those that maybe aren't familiar, like what does an impactful creative campaign mean? Yeah, it's not anything I ever actually think about. Again, what's interesting, it keeps coming back to me, but it's very purposeful, right? So when I was trained, I I went to Temple. And Temple is known as the home of Afrocentricity. It's the first program to actually offer a doctorate degree in African-American studies. And the grounding theory is called Afrocentricity. One might refer to it as African-centeredness. But the distinction, you know, compared to other academic disciplines is that we reject the notion of objectivity, right? This notion that in order to get accurate data or or accurate quote unquote facts that you have to remove yourself from the issue and, and, and study it ob- objectively. It's not real, 
None of us are objective. Even the very decision to study whatever it is you're studying is personal, right? For us, we are actually given permission to center ourselves. So in the work that I've done, I've always started with myself, right? So my general area of interest and expertise is colorism. Skin color politics. Why? Because I'm a very dark-skinned Black girl who grew up in a very color-conscious society of New Orleans, right? Where there's a history in terms of the, the, the Black community there where power was absolutely predicated upon the complexion of one's skin. And the closer you are to whiteness, right, the closer you are to a white aesthetic, white body features, then the more power that you're given in that space. That absolutely is going to impact me being as dark-skinned as I am and literally coming from Africa, right? My interest in colorism was about also trying to make meaning of my own lived experiences. Why is the world this way? Why is society this way? Why am I going to be treated differently because my skin is dark and because my hair is kinky? And so my own interest in the topic is what really drove me to research it, right? So then when I look forward to a campaign like Pretty Period, right, which is about affirming dark skin beauty, I'm thinking of little Yaba. What did little Yaba need? When she was six and seven years old, growing up in a society where she didn't see herself. Talk to us about what Pretty Period is and Pretty Lips Period. Pretty Period, hashtag Pretty Period, is a response to the often backhand compliment that I've received and many other dark-skinned women have received. With, oh, you're pretty for a dark-skinned girl, which is not a compliment at all, right? Because it presupposes that dark skin is not beautiful, but here you stand as the exception. And so the response is, no, I'm pretty, period, right? And so it is a visual campaign. Again, it's about what are we seeing out there, right? In the media and just in our own, our own experiences. And what's beautiful to me about this moment of social media, of content creation, this is so much different than it was for me growing up in the 80s, right? That there's so many independent creatives who have the power to create and project whatever imagery we want. So if I have the option to create visuals and, and share visuals publicly, Pretty Period was an opportunity to share images of dark-skinned, brown-skinned women and girls so that if you're scrolling on Instagram, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, wherever it is, that you can actually see yourself reflected in such a way that is beautiful, right? If we had to depend on the mainstream to show us ourselves, we would continue to think that we were not beautiful. Uh -huh. And so Pretty Period was literally as simple as that, just wanting to create images and share images of beautiful, dark-skinned people so that we could see ourselves and also know that we are beautiful in our dark skin because of our dark skin, not despite of it. Flash forward, you are in North Carolina and you have an idea called Professional Black Girl. What is this series? What is Professional Black Girl? Okay, so when I was in North Carolina, I was an endowed chair in political science, fancy title, which came with some research money. And again, you know, when I think about my relationship to the academy, part of the struggle was like, I don't want to talk in academic prose. I don't want to publish in academic journals because who's going to see it and who's it going to benefit? Like if we're literally talking to ourselves, how can I do work that, that actually reaches people, right? And can, can impact their lived experiences. By the way, before you even explain that, how does the academic community respond when, when you say that? You know, I don't know that they'll say it to my face, but I get, the, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, a lot of people, a lot of black folks, a lot of folks of color in the academy, they know it to be true. But ultimately, if you want to keep your job and if you want to get tenure and if you want to rise up the ranks, you got to play the game in a particular way, you know. And it's not to say that everybody who has tenure or everybody who's in the academy is not about the people. That's not true. Different people have different experiences. Different people have different leeway to do their work differently. But in general, like there are a lot of folks who like being Dr. So-and-so and and Professor So-and-so and and only want to go to certain conferences and only want to publish in certain journals. Like there is some pseudo power wrapped up in the identity. So, I mean, I think some folks recognize that that's just the way it is and they're okay with that. And there are other folks like me who struggle and they're trying to figure out, you know, what they can do to to balance it. And what's interesting when I think about all of these campaigns that I've done, the work that I've done while I was in the academy, that was literally self-care for me. That was my escape from the rigidity of the academy. Uh So the work that I did actually gave me the freedom to see what the real world was doing and to do work that impacted people's lived experiences. All right. Now I want to hear about professional Black girl. So (laughs) North Carolina Central is a historically Black college. And it's interesting because I always wanted to teach at an HBCU. I grew up on HBCU campuses. My dad only taught at HBCUs. He taught at Xavier and then he taught at Delaware State University. And, you know, when you're at a PWI and you can count how many of you there are, you know, thinking of an HBCU, it literally feels like a homecoming, right? Like a home going. Like it's the the presumption is that it's going to be so much different when you are completely surrounded by your folks. And it's a magical thing. It is. I won't take that away. But when I got there, in a faculty position, right, which is a lot different than being there as a student, I saw things a little bit differently. And I recognized how much, even though in numbers, we might be the majority in practice and ideology and consciousness, it functions in a way that may not be affirming to who we truly are, right? And so what I saw was having a lot of Black women students who were being advised by other professors and mentors about how they needed to act, how they needed to look, how they needed to wear their hair, how they might need to even pronounce their own names in order to be seen as quote unquote professional, in order to be seen as successful, in order to make it, right? So what it felt like was that we were training our women away from themselves, that we were training Uh them to reject their blackness, ultimately, if they wanted to be seen as successful. So me creating Professional Black Girl was also my way of pushing back because I don't fit those modes either, right? Again, I'm, a, I'm the wild child, right? And so if you say what it means to be professional is A, I'm doing Z, but I'll still get the job and I'll still get the work done, right? And so my use of professional in Professional Black Girl is really subversive. It is to say, no, professional is not you know straightening your hair necessarily or changing your name from... Lakeisha Danielle to L. Danielle, you know, it is about actually affirming your own self, your own blackness, the things that make you a black girl. And I'm calling that professional. So the extent to which you claim your identity, the extent to which you perform your identity, that's what makes you professional. So professional black girl is really a shout out to the everyday round the way girl. It is a way for us to celebrate the very things that make us black girls. What I also notice in mainstream pop culture, 
there's so many moments where, you know, folks who are not Black will take on Black cultural and Black cultural identity and, and, and use it as a costume and or performance. And they'll get all of these, you know, oohs and ahs and all of this attention for it. And then we respond and then we react. And so we're mad because Kim Kardashian has cornrows or we're mad because Adele is wearing Bantu knots at Carnival. And like, yes, those things are problematic, but we don't have to wait for someone to steal it, to claim uh -huh. it as our own. So how do we claim it on an everyday basis? And so the project is really about us claiming it. I would love for you to explain what you mean by professional versus professionalism and kind of the race influences around the kind of conventional notions of what it means to be professional or professionalism. Oh, it's racist. <laughs> it's definitely seated in white supremacy. It's definitely seated in this idea that there is one way to act, that mm -hmm. there is a particular way that you need to act in order to be seen as successful. So whether that's wearing a suit and tie for women wearing, I hate business suits. I hate business jackets, the skirts, that standard kind of look that you have to wear in order to be seen as, it is so uh, bland. Right. Yeah. And so, again, it's like creating these boxes and you can only act in this way. And when you learn how to act in this way, then there are some benefits that come. There are some privileges that you will gain access to. Give a damn about who you really are. Give a damn about your culture and how you see things as, as being. Mm -hmm. But you got to act this one way in right. order to be seen as successful. And that one way, Black folks weren't uh, uh, consulted in that decision-making, right? So we are given standards that we must meet. And most of those standards are us having to move away from who we are. You know, I think of something so simple, for me it's simple, as naming practices, right? My name is Yaba Ambole Blay. My father, my father, I have to give my dad a shout out because he's he grew up in Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana. He's a black nationalist. He came to this country. He will not let anybody make him forget that he was Ghanaian. Right. There's so many people who come to this country and want to conform. There's so many people outside of this country who culturally may have a name, but on paper, their name is standard basic English. Right. Yeah. And so, again, all of the different ways that we are being forced to move away from ourselves and from our culture, it just consistently and continuously reinforces that we're not good enough. And insofar as we participate in it. We affirm it. So what are the ways that we can reject these standard white notions of how we ought to act? White notions are fine for white people. But how is it then that white notions are standard for everybody? Right. That's the problem. One of the things that I, in researching you, when I go on your Instagram, I love your kind of about me like profile on the top. And you're like, this is not Dr. Blaze page. This is Yaba's page. Connect what you just were saying to how you're treating your social media and like what, where you make the separation. You know, in a lot of ways, there is no separation because I don't want to, to, to um, act like or say that they're two different people. Ultimately, my point is that there are a lot of ways that people project their ideas of what it means to be Dr. Whomever onto me. There are a lot of ways that people expect me to quote unquote act because, you know, I have a PhD or because I have a particular visibility. And again, all of those things, they just move me away from myself. Like ultimately when you take away this PhD, 
when you take away the resume, when you take away all of those things, what you can't take away is me. You can't take away Yaba, right? And so for me, social media, yes. My platform, I use it in a variety of ways, you know, whether it is to talk about current events, whether it is to talk about race and whatever else I feel like talking about in the political arena, or if it's to share, you know, ratchet memes and laugh, you know, it's my page. And so really that announcement is about whoever you think that person is or whatever you, because again, there are a lot of folks who, who use their platform to promote their own kind of quote unquote professional endeavors. And so you go to their page and you know what to expect. You don't know what to expect when you come to my page. You can get any variety of things and all, because again, 90 Day Fiance is one of my favorite shows, okay? Whatever you think about that, that's fine. You might catch me on a Sunday night and I'm talking about Michael and Angela because that's what I want to do. Do you expect Dr. Blay to do that? That's on you, right? And so again, freedom is my ultimate motivation. And anytime someone tries to confine me, I'm going to come out swinging. And so... (laughs) That might make me, you know, go a little hard in the wrong direction. But ultimately, the point is to say, like, stop doing that to people. You've created this amazing community on your Instagram. And it's a growing community that's having, as as you just said, a variety of conversations, depending on what you're posting about. But talk to me about what this community means to you and what, what you want to get out of this community. I don't want to get out of the community anything. I want to give, right? The community that we have built together has been amazingly supportive to me. Like I said, I wasn't going to talk about this until the end of the year, so I won't say too much, but I will say that with COVID, so last year was my last year in the academy. I left North Carolina in June and came to Philadelphia again without a job. And I told myself that I was going to hustle. Previously, the entire time that I've worked and had the luxury of direct deposit, I've always been a speaker and I've always done consulting. So I told myself that I would now focus my energy on making that my full-time hustle, right? And I did. Um, It wasn't as easy at first as I thought it would be. And then COVID hit. And so what happens when you can't get on a plane, right? This is before we recognize that literally you can do anything on Zoom, right? Um, Right. But before that moment, I I definitely was a moment where I'm like, well, shit, what am I going to (laughs) do? You know, how am I going to literally survive. And I do a series on Friday nights or whenever I get to it called Judgment Free Zones, where I curate all level of memes and foolishness because I'm committed to joy in this moment. And so folks really started enjoying it. And I one day just told folks, you know, give me a love offering. I'll create a, a close friends list and I'll give you more content during the week. And Long story short, had it not been for my community, had it not been for those love offerings, I do not know how I would have been able to pay my bills. It's amazing. My community has supported me in in, in beautiful and amazing ways beyond money. You know, uh-huh. it's also a beautiful thing to be able to log in and have love notes from folks who will say, you know, I had the worst week and I look forward to Judgment Free Zone because I can just laugh, you know, and so... I look at joy as a form of resistance, particularly for Black folks. Like we are inundated in this moment with all level of visual assassination, literally, not just physically, but literally on a variety of levels. Every time we turn on a TV, we look at a screen, we are being, it's, it's defeating. 
in a lot of ways. And so in the ways that our ancestors found a way to laugh and to dance and to sing and to still find joy, given the realities that they experience, we can do the same. So even if you just find 10 minutes, 20 minutes out of the day to just laugh, right? To just escape even. And it might not be an escape. For me, the laughter helps me to keep going because I know that joy always comes back in the morning. To know that so many other people are laughing with me and them to also say like, I needed that laugh, so thank you. Like that, that does my heart good. After I did the Share the Mic campaign and I was matched with Abby Wambach and so many of her followers started following me, I now recognize that probably more than half of my followers are white, which is crazy to me, right? Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> yeah, who would have thought? But now it also, again, connecting dots, it gives me this opportunity moving outside of the academy. And again, I'll pat my own back. I'm an amazing educator, right? And I know the ways that I've been able to change my students' life. And it's not about giving you facts to memorize. It's about pushing you to think critically, can I just pause you on that? Because I love how you just said that. I don't even like the word bragging. It's like, you should, everyone should pat their own back. Like everyone should identify what are you really fucking good at? And I think, you know, if there's like one, one of many lessons I think for our listeners today is to really own what you do really well. And also to really own like who you are. I question mash- a lot of things, but I don't question my ability to teach. That comes from a lot of the affirmation that I've gotten, but also literally watching my students mind stick, watching them be able to see and think about things differently. If you're comfortable with sharing, and it's totally up to you, something happened on your your Instagram page this past July, which is worth bringing attention to. Can you walk us through what happened and how you think social media companies and platforms can, can do better to protect Black voices? Are you talking about the incident where I posted something and then a white woman came and reported it and it was taken down in four minutes. That is the incident I am referencing. Cool, cool, cool. So again, um, I do judgment-free zone every Friday, sometimes Saturday. And to announce that it's up in my stories, I usually do a post on my page. I posted this video meme and what it showed was a guy sitting in the front seat and in the back seat, it was like two other dudes brawling it out. And this dude is looking at the camera, looking completely unbothered. And that was the point of the meme is just to say that no matter what is happening around you, don't be bothered, right? We, and by we, I'm saying Black folks, <laughs> we're able to laugh at it because what we recognize is nine times out of 10, the two dudes in the backseat are probably his brothers or their cousin. They got into a dumb argument. They're fighting. They'll be friends in 10 minutes. It's not, quote unquote, violence in the ways that you may think of it, right? Uh-huh. This new follower, this white woman comes to the page and I watch this happen in real time. She comments, why is violence okay? Within four minutes, my post was taken down with a note from Instagram saying that this post violated community guidelines and I lost my whole fucking mind. Why? Because what I know, what many Black folks know about Instagram is that your community guidelines are some bullshit. Meaning, do you know how many pages there are that literally are dedicated to killing Black people? How many videos, how many, how many times I've been called a nigger in my inbox, how many times people have literally unleashed all of their followings. I have blocked a hundred people this week. And I know because I'm counting so that you feel 
entitled to come into my black space and tell me how I should be running it. This white woman, by her own admission, was a new follower. She had just followed me that day. And your first interaction with me is to report because you think that you're entitled to tell me how to run my page. So you report it. And in this moment, I don't remember the the exact series of events, but somehow or another, I want to say maybe I posted her apology. She sent me this long apology. I think she had posted on her page and she was even proud of herself somehow. And then my followers unleashed on her. But longest story short, she tried to apologize. She sent me like $100 on Venmo. I sent it back to her. Like, go away. I'm glad you sent it back. But it was to say, and I made it a very public, ongoing conversation because, again, since posting that, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me with their own stories mm-hmm. about how many times I've I've reported things and gotten the feedback from Instagram that it doesn't violate community guidelines, right? And so you, all it takes is one white woman's tears. You don't ask me anything. You don't ask for my side of the story. Her word is enough for you to police my page. But the words of hundreds of Black folks telling you that there is a racist page that exists is not enough for you to take it down? We know what this is. And then at the same time, Instagram had the audacity to have their logo in Black talking about support Black voices and we stand with the Black community. No, you don't. And that's why I call bullshit on the entire moment that we've been experiencing since George Floyd. Uh Because words and actions are two different things. You know how many brands and organizations reached out to me asking me to be a consultant because they wanted me to write their statement for them? Your statements aren't real. Your statements are about attention. You want us to think that you support the Black community when you absolutely do not. You don't get gold stars from me for a statement. I so appreciate everything you are sharing and saying. And I have so many questions. And I I say I have so many questions as a white woman. I have so many questions. How can non-Black people on social media specifically support Black voices without making the conversation, end up making the conversation about themselves. What I'm learning in this moment of antsiness is that a lot of people, not just white people, but I'm focusing on white people in this moment, you don't know how to just be quiet. You don't know how to just observe. If there's a Black voice that you appreciate, share it, but also shut up, right? That somehow you think that by commenting by coming in my inbox and asking my opinion. Like, I don't work for you. You don't understand that this is labor to have to answer your questions. I should not be responsible for your education. If you learn something along the way, great. But you want to make it the additional burden. You want to make it my job to teach you when it's not. Now, if you want me to, you can pay me. We can make this transactional. But again, it's just this moment. And I see this across time. Black people are oppressed, but then we're also responsible for freeing ourselves. So what can white people do? White people can... Well, I don't even, I don't even want to like ask you, like, because that's playing into exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Let me tell you, because we don't need allies, we need accomplices, right? What are you willing to give up? The only way for us to move this thing forward, the only way for us to confront white supremacy is for you to recognize how it impacts you as well, which means that it gives you unearned privilege, right? Just by the color of your skin, it gives you unearned privilege. 
So what part of that privilege are you willing to rescind in order to even this, this playing game? So fortunately for me, I have a lot of followers, white followers with a lot of access to capital. They give me money. They give money to other campaigns. Like if money comes easy to you and it's not a big deal, then share it. Call it reparations, call it whatever you want, right? Or if you are, you know, the top of a Fortune 500 company or whatever access you have to whatever, how are you going to share it? Who are you going to give voice to? So you have a podcast, here I sit talking, right? Whatever, whichever, which ways you can open the door. And when you open that door, also be willing to leave because that's the other thing, right? People keep talking about, I want to seat at the table. Okay, if you have a table, let me sit down and then leave the room. Go away. Trust me to do what it is I'm doing. What, what the, the rub is, and the reason why, interestingly enough, I do diversity and equity work, but I do it on a very select basis, literally. Like, I don't care how much money you're giving me. I'm not going to walk into a room and fight you tooth and nail knowing that you don't really want to learn, knowing that you just want to throw money at the problem and say, oh, we had Dr. Blake come in and consult. No, you can keep that, right? I only want to work in situations where I see the potential for actual change or I see that folks actually want to do something, right? And so if you have a table, open the door. Let us sit down and go away. Stop inserting yourself into every conversation. It's not about you. You don't understand how frustrating it is for me to have to continually explain my experience to you when you were never interested in getting to know it anyway. That's laborious. Stop making it about you. And that's the most frustrating thing for me. Yeah. When I think about the white folks that I can really get down with and folks who I know are about the work, they recognize that. They know how to shut up. They know how to open doors and walk away. They don't constantly insert themselves and make it about them. I I hear what you're saying. What are your thoughts around how people have or have not held up their own commitments to anti-racist work? You referenced this moment that we're in. There's been a lot of performative moments that we've seen this, you know, social, because we're all on 24-7, like it, it becomes like a breeding ground for a lot of performative words or images. And then there's, the, then there's people actually doing the work. So I'm just curious, like from your perspective, how do you think about how people are holding true or not holding true to the anti-racist work that they've committed to? And specifically around how companies, you know, made a lot of commitments and did it in, in a rush and, and kind of did it very quickly overnight. And, and I'm just curious, like now that it's been a few months since since George Floyd's murder and since this moment really kind of has taken hold of of everyone, how you think about it? I mean, it's hard to say, honestly. Um, I don't have any gold stars for anybody in this moment. I think the problem with this quote-unquote anti-racist work is that it becomes something where now white people want to learn about Black people. The lens is on us when the lens should be on you. We are not the problem. You are. So if there's anti-racist work to be doing, it's really a work around whiteness. It's really work around understanding white supremacy. But instead, now it's let's share black stories. Let's amplify black voices. Let's look at black people. Let's have an appreciation for black people. No, let's actually think critically about whiteness and all of the terror and oppression that you've enacted for X amount of generations. Maybe if we understand that and your relationship to it, maybe if you understand how unearned privilege works, then you might be actually better prepared to do something about it. 
Because the thing about it is too many people are quick to want to, as white people, want to distinguish themselves, right? I'm doing the work or I'm an anti-racist or I'm committed to anti-racism and they're not. No, you're all racist. But you wouldn't know that because you don't understand racism, right? It's why I don't even use the language of racism. I use the language of white supremacy, right? And again, white supremacy is not necessarily a white supremacist in the way that you're thinking of it as a Klan member. I'm talking about a historical and institutional ideology about power and privilege, And until you understand that and its history and its trajectory, you won't understand your relationship to it. And if you don't understand your relationship to it, you can't do anything about it. And so as we talk about statements, it's why I will continue to applaud the likes of Ben and Jerry. Ben and Jerry's came out, their statement was dismantle white supremacy. The fact that they could even say those words. I can't tell you how many times that I've been called to consult for all manner of companies. And I say what I'm saying to you, we have to use the language of white supremacy. Well, we don't want to offend people or we don't want to ruffle any feathers, essentially, right? That you can't even say the words. How can you do the work when you can't say the words? How can you do the work when you can't say the words? Ben and Jerry's came out and said, dismantle white supremacy. I'm rocking with Ben and Jerry's because they had the audacity to say the words in an environment that is scared of owning it. And if you're scared to own it, if you can't even say the words, how can you do the work? That's why when people say racist, anti-racist, because y'all don't even understand what racism is. What you're talking about is prejudice. You don't even understand how racism is. You're talking about individuals. You're not talking about institutions. When you're ready to talk about institutions, then we can do some work. How are you taking care of yourself and your sanity in in all of this? Uh, I'm just curious, like, how are you protecting yourself? Um, Protecting myself by blocking many people. I protect myself by not answering every email, ignoring people. I protect myself by watching 90 Day Fiance. I protect myself by collecting memes. I protect myself by drinking Prosecco on occasion. It's hard to practice self-care in the way that I would like to, given this COVID reality. Like... The thing that always heals me and makes me feel good is the sun and the ocean. And I have not been able to get to the beach. It's hard, honestly. I won't profess to have the answers when it comes to self-care. You know, it it is a struggle because this work consumes me. There's no clocking out. But I do, I am surrounded by an amazing community of folks, not just in the digital space, my my friends, my family, my loved ones who remind me that they see me (laughs) and they can imagine that I might be stressed. And so, you know, they share in my victories, but they always give me space to vent and they always remind me, they remind me whether I do it or not, that I need to take care of myself. Sometimes, sometimes that is the care, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to even hear and to, to receive and accept that like, you got to slow down, you know, or that it's okay to sleep in. I follow an amazing page on Instagram called the nap ministry. This woman is a black woman and her whole ministry is about, look, grind culture is going to kill us. You deserve to rest. Something as simple as rest is a privilege for so many of us, you know? So for me, I just ordered some 600 thread count sheets, you know? I'm going to get some nice lavender spray for my sheets. I need to set a bedtime. I need to create ritual around sleeping. I need to prioritize my rest, 
you know, because my sleep schedule, especially during quarantine, has been all over the place. But I want to get to a place where I don't play about my sleep, you know, yeah. and, and, and rest and rejuvenate. Something as simple as that um, can be self-care. So it might not look like a massage or a spa day or all the other kind of, I think, surface level ways that we think about self-care. But for me, self-care has to first and foremost recognize that I need to take care of myself. It can be that simple. I'm going to move into our lightning round, which is our last segment. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm a night owl. What's something you do in the morning to inspire your creativity for the day? Burn incense. What is your favorite couple on 90 Day? Michael and Angela. What is your favorite franchise of 90 Day? 90 Day Happily happily Ever After. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? Last week. What'd you negotiate? Negotiated my consulting fee. What is the social account our audience should start following if they aren't already? The Nat Ministry. This is when I post on Instagram, people wanted me to ask you, what are you reading right now? Hmm, I'm not. <laughs> but, but what I want to be reading is I want to reread The Color Purple. This year is the 35th anniversary. It's my favorite book, my favorite film. And every time I read it, I, I learn something new. So I want to be rereading The Color Purple. Who should we have on the show? Dr. Kyla Story. Dr. Blay, thank you so much for um, this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 